Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is the episode of Thursday, January 27, 2022. Two, yeah, that's it. I'm still getting used to it. Um, and of course, thank you to all the listeners who've been subscribing on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, all of those. Who, um, who are using Podcasting 2.0. You can find us on uh, platforms such as Fountain. And I know that some of you have actually been donating already in those sats. Uh, so thank you to those who've been donating. And of course, on the regular podcast programs uh, where you can uh, review, that is much appreciated as well. So wherever you're listening right now, give us a five-star review or whatever it is at this point. I really don't know. Um, that, that does really help. And of course, share this podcast with friends and family whoever you think might be interested in it. Uh, and of course, at work, obviously, because uh, some of you uh, listen to these things because they have to for work, as I've been told. So I find that quite interesting that uh, that is also part of it. But I hope you are having a great time no matter what. Uh, this week, uh, basically just two guests. Uh, so I have my colleague Jal Osowski joining me for five minutes to talk about Austria's implementation of mandatory vaccination. And then I have a bit of a longer chat with Peter Klepper, the editor-in-chief of the Brussels Report, who you've uh, been hearing on this podcast, I think, twice already. And uh, we're chatting about the redesign of the euro bills. And then it kind of went into investment and, uh, and also monetary policy. A lot of talk about inflation, which I think is very important. So do stick around for those two. And um, yeah, basically, let's get us started here. Uh, I talked to Yal about uh, Austria's implementation of uh, mandatory vaccination. And uh, yeah, take it away. So Yal, I wanted to talk to you because uh, Austria is now implementing its vaccine mandate. Uh, and I wanted to, to just get a sense of what exactly does that mean? Because some European countries are talking about um, uh, mandatory vaccination from the age of 50. Is that also the case in Austria? And how exactly will it be implemented in, uh, in Austria? Well, it's not 50. It goes all the way down to 18. Uh, actually, they had previously discussed making the vaccine mandate something for 12-year-olds and above as well. Uh, thankfully, they, don't, they went away from that. Uh, but essentially, this came down to November 2021, it was sort of the largest of all of the surges uh, that we had had in the numbers of COVID cases and hospitalizations. Um, the chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, had, had just stepped down from his position due to some other corruption allegations. And essentially, the new government came in. They were faced with all of these cases, all of the hospital beds filling up. And they said, well, uh, here we go. We're going to implement a vaccine mandate, an Impfpflicht. And uh, this will come into force in February. And actually, it was uh, just earlier this week that we actually had the vote on the compulsory vaccination law. Uh, so it actually does begin in, uh, I think, next week. It'll be the February 1st. And from that point on, essentially, there are three phases for this vaccine mandate. The first phase is that every household in Austria will receive information on mandatory vaccines, and then we'll get uh, sort of info cards. Um, and then phase two is that beginning on March 15th, uh, there will be random spot checks for people's vaccination statuses, both on the streets and out and about. 
Um, if your listeners remember, there is still a lockdown for those who are not vaccinated, and um, that it now is because the definition of fully vaccinated is changing uh, next month. That means that those who've had two shots but have not yet had a booster, uh, if their second shot is older than six months, they're also counted as unvaccinated in the law. And that those who cannot provide full proof of vaccination after that date on March 15th uh, will be subject to a fine of up to 600 euros per quarter, which will end up being around 2,400 euros a year. And essentially, if you cannot pay and you've reached that maximum amount, uh, they will introduce substitute imprisonment for those lucky folks. Wow, that is... um... That is a, that is very strict, and I was curious how um, was there any constitutional oversight committee or anything? Do you think this is going to be challenged in any way in in the courts by by citizens? What do you think the legal repercussions are going to be? There are definitely there are two ways of of kind of analyzing this. There is a present uh, legal action um, that they could not pursue until the law was actually passed fully, so I'm assuming something is happening this week, Uh, but there were a good number of lawyers uh, and researchers and the like who had put their names on some kind of forthcoming legal action against uh, the government and the republic as a whole. So I have seen this. Um, It has been passed around. There have been a few petitions. Uh, But overall, if you look at, you know, the entire makeup of of the council, of the parliament, uh, actually the the opposition, there weren't that many. Uh, the only party that really was unified against such a measure was the Freedom Party, the FPU, uh, who have generally been against the COVID restrictions. But it's surprising that actually there were four liberal parliamentarians from the NEOS party who voted no, as well as one from the Social Democrats, uh, which was uh, fairly odd. Uh, they kind of had their own reasons. Many of them just stated that the emphasis should be on vaccination, yes, uh, but should not be required by law because essentially up until about August and September, the only thing we heard from the government is vaccination is important, but there's no way that we can force you. And it seems since that time, the tone has very much changed. Uh, The second sort of analysis on this is that actually it's going to be next to impossible to actually enforce all of this which I don't necessarily buy because there's a lot of enforcement that's having private that's happening privately. Specifically, if you go to the hardware store and buy nails, much like I did, uh, they do have employees at the door checking the vaccination pass, checking your ID, making sure the dates line up so you're not past your time. Uh, and they have this in essentially every shop now, um, at least in the capital city of Vienna. I can't speak for the countryside. It might be a bit more lax, uh, but we can see that you know, there are still, there are a lot of societal pressures that exist uh, to make sure that this is a success. I had one last point I wanted to address with you. Um, An opposition MP in in, in Luxembourg addressed this recently on the the conversation of uh, mandatory vaccination. He said um, that he is worried that if you you make it compulsory to get vaccinated, uh, unvaccinated people will uh, be more um, hesitant to go and see a doctor to report uh, anything to the police because they might get caught. So if, you, if you're up for surgery, you might not go to the hospital because you say, well, I don't want to pay my fine. I don't want to get vaccinated. I won't pay, I won't pay the fine, so I don't want to get caught. Um, there might be some, uh, some unintended consequences there of like suspicion to healthcare providers and, and, and law enforcement. 
Yeah, and there have been um, a few cases. Uh, I mean, one that's, I believe it was in the U.S., in Boston, uh, there's someone who essentially was removed from the transplant list because he had not been vaccinated. Uh, when it comes to Austria, I could see that somehow being the case. Of course, you know, I'm on the side of, of having been vaccinated, and essentially because the the regulations are so strict, they've made it so that it's next to impossible to function in society without it. And I think many leaders have come out and stated that that's the obvious goal. Uh, specifically, uh, Justin Trudeau in Canada has said such. Uh, in Austria, they haven't been as explicit. Uh, they just said this is sort of, uh, you know, the stick and the carrot. Uh, this is this is sort of the, the most generous and uh, most the strongest carrot I've ever seen that's being whipped out by a government. Uh, but definitely their their goal is to make the unvaccinated very uncomfortable. Um, and again, this is not based on any uh, scientific understanding. There are very few studies on what this would do when you mandate it, uh, because essentially we're still having to show all of the mandates. We're still having to show all of the vax passes anywhere we go. And it's never really about threat. It's never really about comorbidities and all of that. Uh, there's definitely going to be a segmentation in society. Unfortunately, there aren't too many leaders in Austria that come from either academia um, or from industry who've been too loud about this. And um, I think it's it's sort of, uh, as we would say in French, damage, uh, that we haven't seen too much opposition apart from the Freedom Parties. That said, there have been every single weekend, every Saturday in the main square, um, there have been protests uh, that have been largely derided by many in the media and the political establishment. But uh, still, there's a sentiment that uh, what is happening now is the first in the world in terms of an experiment. And we're not really sure what it's going to pretend for the future and regulations of individuals' health. And then last but not least, we have Peter Klepper, editor-in-chief of the Brussels Report, uh, which you can find on brusselsreport.eu. And uh, yeah, Peter had some very interesting things to say about uh, the new euro bills, and that led us to a larger conversation about monetary policy in the eurozone. All right, Peter, it's great to have you back on the Consumer Podcast. We're talking about uh, banknotes uh, because it's the 20th anniversary of the euro and there seem to be some voices that want to do a redesign. Now, interesting history about that. Apparently in the 90s, it was controversial uh, how, what to exactly put on these banknotes. And now again, we're having a conversation, should we have people on those banknotes? And that, that creates a whole political back and forth as to what exactly should be on our banknotes. And banknotes do have a significant value there. So I wanted to get your take on this, on this conversation. What should we put on Euro banknotes? Well, so um, thank you for inviting me and, uh, and Happy New Year to you and to, to the listeners of the, of the podcast. Uh, so I think the, the, uh, the issue of Euro banknotes is, is quite um, exemplary, so to say, for, uh, for the, the challenges uh, of the Eurozone. So, so we have now uh, 19 different economies that um, have decided to have a, a, common, uh, a common currency. And uh, yeah, back in the 90s, um, I mean, the euro was formally um, uh, created on uh, the 1st of January 1999, but the actual banknotes were only brought into circulation uh, three years later on the 1st of January 2022. So, so basically, countries were uh, debating on 
on, on the issue, okay, what kind of symbols should be there, famous people, I mean, even within countries, this is already sometimes a contentious uh, subject. Uh, so you could imagine uh, that, uh, yeah, if you, if you had to sort of do good for all the Eurozone countries, it was not so easy. Now, the compromise was uh, to have um, bridges uh, that uh, would supposedly um, resemble the, uh, the construction styles in, um, in various European countries uh, throughout history. I mean, it's it's telling that um, sort of the uh, the bridges were or the original proposal was seen as too um, uh, you know too too clear. It was too clear what kind of bridges were depicted. So so the artist had to sort of made it less clear. Uh, so so I think in the end some kind of a relatively banal um, depiction um, emerged. I mean, that said, a few years later, uh, in the Dutch town of uh, Spekenisse, there was a real estate project uh, which involved a number of canals. And there, all the, the, the bridges that uh, sort of were depicted on Eurozone banknotes were constructed in real life. So, so I think that's, uh, that's kind of cool. Uh, but, well, long story short, I think what it shows is that there's lack of uh, unity on, on political unity when you have trouble agreeing um, what the important figures or symbols uh, are that uh, should uh, should be depicted on, on the banknotes. And this has been a critique, of course, of those opposing the common uh, currency um, of Europe uh, from the very beginning, that it was um, going to force the, the European Central Bank to conduct interest rate policies that would never be optimal for all uh, these different uh, economies. And I think that's, that's fundamentally a fair criticism. And this has had uh, considerable consequences. Um, at the moment, we see that, that uh, uh, interest rates are definitely way too low for, um, you know, for the north of Europe, where you have a massive real estate bubble uh, going on, um, but also for... Um, for the south of Europe uh, and, or the periphery, I should say, we have seen um, major imbalances building up, um, even for countries that had been respecting the rules of the Eurozone. Think of Spain, think of Ireland. They had been respecting the debt limit of 60%. They had been respecting more or less the 3% budget deficit. And nevertheless, they got in trouble. Why? Because... Um, monetary policies were way too loose for these economies that were booming at the time. So what happened there is that a lot of the uh, excess money created was pumped into the real estate sector. And of course, they may have had a real estate crisis anyway, but it was sort of, uh, it was of such gargantuan proportions, um, forcing these countries to, to apply for a bailout, basically forcing them to, to declare bankruptcy. Um, you know, that, I mean, that, that would likely not have been the case if, if it weren't for the euro that um, entailed a lot of cheap money to be 
uh, you know, to be printed and to be showered um, into the banking system of, of the Eurozone member states. And, and what is interesting is when we look at all the sort of the, the look backs over the last 20 years, or what people mention when they look, when, when, when they talk about the euro is usually just the convenience, the fact that, you know, I travel through Europe and I don't have to change all of these different currencies and we don't have to deal with the Belgian franc and the Luxembourgish franc, even though those were more or less the same anyway. Uh, but 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 traveling through Europe has become more convenient. What has this convenience, in your view, cost us? Because I mean, there isn't there's a there's a definite travel advantage to having a common currency. But what has it cost us? Uh, you know, if we were to ask you. Well, yeah, absolutely. I of course, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to everything. Uh, so personally, I, I'm not a, a supporter of the euro. I think the disadvantages are much bigger, but it's true that this is definitely the obvious advantage. Um, another advantage is the fact that when you have a financial crisis, there's probably more stability because it's a bigger boat. Um, that, that is also true. Um, but this has all come at a, um, at a price. And as I mentioned um financial crisis have erupted because of the euro. And, and this is where I want to, to get to, because I remember when I was a student, a friend of mine who was studying economics, he was also complaining. I think it was about a professor who was only citing this, uh, um, you know, advantage of not having to exchange currency as the um, advantage uh, that the euro would bring. Um, and, and when you think about, you know, most people that defend the euro mostly only are able to come up with that advantage. Now, so I often ask people um, when I'm asked to, to, to talk about this, a very simple question, uh, and that is, okay, what precisely will change when a country joins the eurozone? For example, imagine Bulgaria uh, joins the euro. Uh, Bulgaria already has its currency pegged. Uh, to the euro. It, it moves in tandem, which is a very good policy. Uh, other countries like Turkey should perhaps also uh, try it, but that would dramatically constrain the spending ability of the, uh, of the government. So that's why they don't like to do that. Now, um, also in Bulgaria, many, many transactions, same in, in Croatia, which actually does not have a, a pegged currency, but, but semi-floating. Um, a lot of transactions are in euro anyway, right? Uh, so, so if these countries would join the euro, if you ask people, okay, what will actually change in those countries? Uh, the answer is, is very simple, but I think very few people are able to answer it. It's, um, the, the answer is that um, banks in Bulgaria, banks in Croatia, no longer will uh, need to borrow from the central bank of uh, Bulgaria, or uh, Croatia, but they will be able to borrow at much uh, cheaper interest rates from the European Central Bank. So in effect, what the euro does is not so much to allow people and businesses to pay each other in euro. I mean, uh, Kosovo, uh, Montenegro, they use the euro, even if they're not in the eurozone or even in the EU. Um, no, what, what, the, what the euro uh, and, and Eurozone membership actually entails is that uh, the very cheap money offered by the ECB uh, is offered to banks. And then banks do two things with it. First of all, they buy government debt. So a lot of the cheap money, for example, that was pumped into Italian banks 
was passed on very uh, handsomely to the Italian government. So the Italian government was a lot less dependent on the development of the Italian economy um, as a result of this dynamic than, uh, than before. The Italian government now uh, does not really have to worry about its finances as long as the ECB is willing to prop it up. Um, it has no incentive whatsoever to undertake fundamental structural reforms uh, that would uh, finally generate proper growth in Italy again. This is what we've seen. Uh, the current prime minister, who used to be president of the ECB, Mario Draghi, he always justified when he was ECB president these policies by saying, yeah, you know, we need to buy time for the politicians. So, so we, we print that's true and we indeed prop, up, prop them up. These Italian um, or, or the, these, these governments that are highly indebted uh, and, and that have not gone, uh, that have not been implementing structural reforms. But, you know, when, when, when we um, allow them not to have to worry anymore about their finances, then they will finally uh, introduce reforms. Of course, the opposite happens. Governments only undertake reforms when they're in trouble. We've seen that many times. We've seen that in Ireland at the end of the 80s. We've seen it in Scandinavia after the fall of the, of the USSR. In, in, uh, in many other countries, you can always point at counterexamples. Perhaps Portugal is, is a, is a counterexample, um, even if it actually also introduced reforms by left-wing government a few years ago, um, you know, after it had, had uh, ended up in, uh, in crisis. So, so it is a, it's a sleeping pill, uh, the euro. It, it, uh, it, it rewards uh, not making reforms. Uh, now, um, I was mentioning banks pump uh, a lot of that cheap money into governments. Secondly, uh, they also pump a lot of that money into, into the real estate market. There's a very strong correlation between um, the Eurozone uh, housing price index and the growth of the balance sheet of the ECB. So the ECB prints money out of nothing, uh, digitally, of course. Um, and then it buys all kinds of um, assets uh, with it. Um, and these assets end up on its balance sheet. Of course, correlation is not causation. These things are very complex. You can never scientifically, uh, mathematically prove it. But I mean, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, quite amazing to see that. I think for 10 years or so, uh, we see real estate increasing, real estate prices increasing very much in tandem with the growth of the balance sheet of the ECB. Meanwhile, the inflation statistics of the of the European Central Bank, or I should say of Eurostat, uh, used by the uh, ECB, are not uh, or have not been showing proper inflation. Uh, why? Because they do not include they do they do not include housing prices. They've recently changed that to a degree. I mean, like, come on, is this is this even serious? I mean, in investment assets uh, have been um, showing uh, high inflation. Uh, since the founding of the of the eurozone, um, and uh, and I think people realize that eh? in many countries, like in Germany, they call it the, the Teuro, um, the uh, which means like an expensive expensive euro. <laughs> so 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 you can't you can't fool ordinary people uh, with with this kind of um, messing around with statistics. I, I, I like talking to you about these topics, Peter, because I, I, I think a lot of consumers underestimate the importance of 
the price of money and 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 the way that money is govern, governed in in the fact like how it ends up leading their lives and how it ends up affecting uh you know everything from the products in their in in their supermarkets to the digital services that they buy uh unfortunately we're running short of time i had one more question uh, for you uh, and and i wanted to come back to something you said about uh how how countries do govern themselves differently uh, with some having their currencies pegged to the euro and others don't. Um, when you talk about the euro and you give counterexamples and you say, well, I mean, for instance, you know, countries like Norway or Switzerland, they do have their own monetary policy and they perform quite well. But are there examples, because then very often the reaction is, yeah, but those are rich countries with good industrial policy to begin with. Are there examples where... Um, countries through independent monetary policies have been have been able to 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 get themselves back on track so that we don't reach the conclusion each time that oh we're just going to make the country in the balkans a member of the european union and then a member of the eurozone and everything's going to be fine are there are there situations where you say yeah there have been countries that have managed through good monetary policies themselves to get themselves from a more precarious situation into a more prosperous uh, place well, I mean, um, Poland, I think, is uh, an example of a country that is uh, not a member of the Eurozone. Uh, it is a member of the EU. So uh, Poland has profited uh, from membership of the single market. Uh, this has been a great thing for the Polish economy. Um, the Polish central, oh, sorry, the Polish private banks have not been showered um, uh, by the ECB with a lot of cheap money. Um, so, so I think that's, that's, that's actually quite a, a good example. Interestingly, also, uh, Poland did not have its currency pegged to the euro. I think uh, if you're not in the eurozone, whether to, to, to link um, the value of your currency with the euro or a strong currency or not, is not such an, uh, an easy thing to say. Um, I think for smaller economies, it may be um, it may be a, a better idea than for bigger economies like the Polish one. Um, but you could also argue that, for example, in the case of Latvia, in the case of Bulgaria, um, that uh, I mean they they have seen a real estate um, uh, boom and bust uh, before or around 2008. Uh, after they had been pegging their currency to the um, uh, to the euro for a while, and you could argue that um, at that time that was not visible for Poland, uh, for Hungary. So um, Henry Hazlitt, a great um, you know free market economist who wrote uh, Economics in One Lesson, uh, he, he he was a fan of floating currencies. I mean, he was not a fan of government money in the first place. But he considered that if um, if you allow uh, the value of a currency to float, uh, that um, you will have less distortions. And I think that's true from a theoretical level. On the other hand, when you have, let's say, uh, uh, less than trustworthy governments like they used to have in, uh, in Bulgaria, or probably still, um, and in many other uh, emerging economies, um, yeah, you could point at a few a few examples of emerging economies that have been, you know, have been doing very well um, with basically fixing their uh, currency uh, to a foreign currency. Of course, a new government can always change that if they really want to, but it's not so easy. 
and it avoids the, the, the kind of tragedies that we now see, uh, for example, in Turkey, where according to uh, Steve Henke, who's, a, who's a, um, uh, an American professor, he's with the Cato Institute, a monetary expert, he, he estimates the, uh, the annual inflation in Turkey to be more than 90%. And Turkey is featured in, in um, you know, the top 10 uh, most inflationary uh, countries together with Zimbabwe, Venezuela. So, which is terrible because, I mean, Turkey has fundamentally a very strong economy, has, has massive growth uh, opportunities. And um, I mean, yeah, so, so this is really, I think, hurting, uh, especially weaker, um, uh, the, the poorer Turkish people. And, and if they would have their currency pegged to the euro, for example, or the dollar, um, it would have been much, much harder for Erdogan and his cronies to, uh, you know, to, to finance government spending and buying political support uh, through, uh, through money printing. One very last thing, Peter, before you go, I know that during the campaign in Germany, uh, and the FDP uh, lead candidate Christian Lindner, he was asked, what would you recommend people to invest in? And now with a lot of consumers, uh, you know, like keeping your money on your savings account is not a good idea. If you had somebody ask you, hey, I have money saved up, what are like three different points where you say it makes sense to invest in? Is it an index fund? What would be your recommendation if somebody out of the blue asks you, what can I do with my money instead of just keeping it in euros? Well, uh, so on Brussels report, I actually have an article series running uh, on that issue. So to be clear, uh, uh, don't ask your money back uh, to me in case it goes wrong. But this is my very modest uh, opinion about this. Um, and I think we have to uh, distinguish between four categories. Uh, the first one is cash. You always need cash, uh, savings, uh, things may go back. There's all kinds of theories. Maybe you need six months salary. Depends of the person. I'm sure if you have children or not. Um, but um, I, well, in any case, you need to have cash, and you need to accept that you always will need to have cash, and that you will lose uh, a part of that uh, money uh, because of currency depreciation. That's the inflation tax. Eh? There's two things certain in life: debt and taxes. So you will always have to pay the inflation tax, uh, unfortunately. Secondly, I would personally recommend to have something um, like as a doomsday, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, backup. Uh, and then I would go for physical gold, which for thousands of years, a uh, few thousands of years, has been. Um, a way to store value and and i think gold especially in the you know in the era after 1971 when the when the last link with the gold standard was was severed eh? when, when the, the 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 orgy of money spending really uh, uh took to um begun in in the west um you know then gold has been doing a relatively uh, fine job uh, i mean but then of course you have to uh, not buy all the gold at once, but you have to carefully spread your uh, purchasing because uh, timing is very difficult. At least I'm terrible in it. Uh, some people may be good. Uh, then a third category is uh, stocks and a fourth category is real estate. I would say if you're renting, uh, the obvious first investment is real estate because then you can, of course, um, you know, avoid um, that monthly um, rent payment 
uh, you know, then you can avoid that this monthly rent payment is, is, uh, is completely gone forever. I mean, if you, uh, if you buy property for yourself, and of course you have to do this in a careful way, at a place that you expect to live for a long time, etc. Everybody knows that, but but um, and you will still lose a lot of that monthly payment for owning property. Uh, you have expenses. I think every year uh, your property loses. I think it's one sixty-fifth of its value. People forget that. Uh, but but I, I would argue, uh, especially in countries like Belgium, where real estate prices are okay, way too high, but still, uh, at least in Brussels, uh, more affordable than than uh, in other um, uh, big European cities. Uh, then I think real estate is a, is a is a smart, fine um, in investment, uh, smart first investment. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, stocks. I mean, this is uh, I think very tricky. Uh, personally, I'm of the view that if you buy stocks, well, of course, you can have your own company, then you have stocks of your own company. That's always a good idea. Uh, but um, um, I think if you uh, if you buy stocks, personally, that's my opinion, it's better to invest time in figuring out who the good stock picker, pickers are than to try it yourself. Uh, of course, most people think they can do it themselves, but they cannot. Um, that, that's my opinion. Um, there's a school of thought who says that it's very, very hard to find good stock pickers. You have to buy markets. Um, and, um, and yeah, that's probably, uh, you know, uh, largely true that you won't do much wrong by carefully buying the S&P or a European index or, or some global development um, index. Um, so, so, yeah, for what that's worth, that's, that's, that's my view. Um, and I think in this way, you are at least uh, partially protected against sort of the, um, the wild monetary financing that's currently going on. And let's know, let there be no mistake about it. The purpose of this money printing is just like in banana republics to, to finance government spending. Um, and I think, of course, I'm a free market liberal, but even if I were a socialist, that would be my view. Um, I think if you want the government to do a lot, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's one opinion, uh, but then the taxes should be a lot higher. I don't think that they should finance that uh, very big government spending uh, through the back door, uh, because um, ultimately this is also very unfair um, in uh, social um, terms, because you know the, the, the rich will always be able to buy hard assets, gold, real estate, uh, and as I mentioned, you know, many like to go back to my advice, uh, uh, many uh, even middle class people already struggle to, to buy a first real estate. So let the loan that they will get uh, to stocks. So, so, so the more inflation you have, uh, the worse this is for, uh, you know, uh, poorer people in, uh, in society. So it is very unfair. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's my view on this. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Peter Klepper on Twitter at Peter, that's Peter with P-I-E-T-E-R, Klepper, C-L-E-P-P-E, on Twitter. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You just like everybody